Greetings, fellow Homo sapiens, and welcome to the Symbiotic Podcast. For this episode, we teamed up with Penn State students Matthew Ogden and Matt Paolizzi from the podcast Podward State, launched by the popular student blog Onward State. Along with Matthew and Matt, we hosted two guests. Meg Small is a research associate in the Bennett Pierce Prevention Research Center for the Promotion of Human Development at Penn State and director of the Health and Human Development Design for Innovation Lab. And Connie Rogers, also from Penn State, is an associate professor of nutritional sciences and associate director of the Huck Institutes of the Life Sciences. Meg and Connie are key faculty researchers collaborating on a project called Data for Action, an effort to understand the impacts of COVID-19 on the population of Center County, Pennsylvania, from many perspectives, including physical and mental health, economics, and behavior. The Data for Action project is a profoundly collaborative effort involving local government, healthcare facilities, multiple units across the university, and thousands of volunteers from throughout Center County. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation about this innovative and timely research. Evolution involves more than the survival of the fittest. It's also about the survival of the most cooperative and mutually beneficial relationships are critical to the survival of every species. Welcome to the Symbiotic Podcast, where we will explore the collaborative side of life and work to consciously evolve science itself. Hey, thanks everybody. It's so exciting to uh, be doing this collaborative episode today with uh, Matt and Matt from the Podward State Podcast, uh, all Penn State student-run podcast. And our guest today, uh, Meg Small from SSRI and Connie Rogers from our own Huck Institutes. Thanks everybody for being here. Thanks great for having us. Right. It's great to see you. So um, we're here today to talk about the Data for Action Research Project. So um, I'm going to let one of our co-hosts from uh, Podward State maybe come in with some early questions for our guests. Yeah, thanks a lot, Cole. Um, so we can go to Meg real quick. Uh, Meg, do you just want to give us like a, a definition of what the data of what the data for Action Project is for someone who might not know anything about it? Yeah. So uh, of course, thank and again, thank you for having us and and allowing us to sort of share information about this this study. It's a it's a complex project um, that has three components, but at the sort of at the heart of it is um, you know when the pandemic started and we realized the the depth and the length that this pandemic would take, uh, researchers at Penn State wanted to leverage all the expertise that we had on campus uh, to provide science and evidence to inform the actions that could be taken to help both our community um, cope and and recover from this, as well as our student population and uh, obviously the Penn State community Uh, more broadly. So the Data for Action project has three components. We started with this really large center county-wide survey uh, that involved over 10,000 community members. From there, we recruited a uh, resident cohort that we're collecting both survey data from, but also biomarker data from. And we're um, hoping to begin enrollment with a student cohort, again, where we'll collect biomarker data and survey data about the um, social, behavioral, educational uh, implications of the pandemic. So it's really combining and leveraging um, lots of different institutes and research traditions on campus, um, which is, is um, sort of exciting that we're able to to sort of provide this at this time. 
And Meg, could you talk about some of the data that you're collecting when you're surveying uh, everybody in Center County? What what kinds of information are you you pulling from them? Yeah, sure. Um, so for the for the large that cross sectional um, study of community members, we're looking at um, sort of their experiences with COVID, symptoms they've had, their mitigation behaviors. So where how often do they wear? Um, face coverings, wash hands, et cetera. But we're also looking at um, the sort of the economic impacts. So uh, are they employed currently? Have they lost their job or been furloughed um, since the pandemic began? Or did they own a small business? Is that business still operational? Um, so those are the kinds of things that we're, we're asking about. And then for the cohort study, which is also Center County community residents, we go much more in depth about the impacts on family dynamics uh, for families with young children. How difficult is it to provide sort of educational opportunities, um, you know, when, when the school's completely shut down and now some, you know, we have a number of school districts within the county, some are fully open, some are doing a hybrid. A lot of families have chosen to keep kids at home and, and educate online. So we really want to sort of understand how that's going for them. Um, and then also just the stress coping and anxiety uh, that goes along with this pandemic. So a lot of questions about health, well-being, coping strategies, particularly in the student cohort, um, that's going to be really important to understand sort of the educational implications, but also the stress and anxiety. Um, and as well, uh, the flip side of that, the the adaptive coping that students are engaged in. Thank you. So, so um, how early in the pandemic did this project get started and how, if at all, has it um, evolved since it first began? <laughs> Yeah, Connie, you were involved in the beginning. I actually reached out to the the entire team, which just grows every week. Um, so I'll say just a little bit of what I understand it to be, because I came in, you know, not so late, maybe three weeks into the planning, but it, but a lot had already been been done. Um, first, I just want to say that the infrastructure that Penn State's invested in allowed us to move really fast and collaborate really effectively. So uh, this started in March, on uh, it. I, I think the genesis was uh, a conversation that Nita Barty and Matt Ferrari had about sort of um, mobility and populations uh, moving and then the risk for transmission of infectious diseases. And it was clear that there's sort of this stable population in Center County, but that students and you know visitors and tourists and families move in and out of the, of the county quite regularly. So what would the implication of that mobility be? They then took it to other folks at, at Huck pretty quickly and they said, we have the, the tools to, to provide some information that could really inform risk and resilience um, in this population, in this sort of really unique population that we're, we're sitting here in. Um, and then uh, we involved, they immediately reached out to Susan McHale, who's the director of the Social Science Research Institute. Uh, and said, you know, it's not just the bio on this, it's gonna be the social, behavioral, educational, coping stress, all of these sort of broader impacts. And that's when the social scientists got involved. And then Connie, you, you were involved pretty early on because of the significant uh, role that the labs were gonna play in assaying, right? Right, and I kind of walk the lane between doing human subjects research and animal research. So my re research is very translational. So I was brought in because I had worked really well with the Clinical Research Center on our own research projects because this involved 
you know, a, a getting a group of people who hadn't worked together before to all speak the same language and be very functional. And so it involves, you know, the social and behavioral scientists and designing the right kinds of questionnaires. It involves people like me who are involved in clinical studies and also who have a laboratory that can do some of the biospecimen bio um, processing and, and storage. Right on. Thank you. And then matter how it's changed over time, I think, and I would just cannot say enough about two groups of people, the, the clinical staff, the nurses, and all of the folks that are checking, and a lot of students are, are volunteering on this project too, checking participants in, really facilitating sort of that bio collection, making everybody um, comfortable and making sure informed consent is clear. And then all of the students that are are working on the back end in the labs as well. I mean, this is just literally a cast of thousands to, to get these data collected as quickly as we did. That's yeah, wonderful. I would like to, you know, just reinforce that, that we've, we've been really fortunate to have a number of both graduate students, but undergraduates be very interested and become involved in the research process. Um, because I think many of them have said, you know, I want to do something. I want to do my part. How, how do we, how do I do a better job or how do I help the university or help the students move forward? Right on. Hey, Matt P, I'm kicking it back to you. Sure. Yeah. Um, you guys were talking about, um, the student involvement. What, what are some other ways that students can get involved right now, um, with this project? Maybe, you know, whether it, whether it's research or not research. Well, we, we, I can answer on the, you know, on the sample end, we, we have had a lot of students be interested in volunteering to do things like help interview folks when they come in or help get their informed consent to participate in research. We have folks that are simply serving as couriers, you know, they're helping us shuttle all these complicated biological samples from point A to point B. Some of the folks are working in my lab um, and they got the appropriate training. Um, and then we're probably going to need students to help with data analysis. So I think, you know, depending on people's interests, their skills, their, the time that they have, there's lots of places that they could participate, you know, kind of all along the spectrum of the research going on. Yeah, and I'll just add to that, um, that we're, again, like I said, we're hoping to start enrolling students into a cohort, again, same methods that we use with the residents. So, um, we'll need students helping in the clinic to check people in, uh, to do some screening questions, answer questions. Um, it's always really great to have students, you know, helping other students go through the process. Uh, and then we have pilot testers for our surveys, which are great because a lot of things that students catch that researchers don't catch, um, ways that things are worded or ways that items could be misunderstood. Um, even additional um, uh, sort of variables that need to be included. Um, we've had lots of students help us and we're going to continue this uh, through the spring. So there'll be at least three data collection points. So it's always great to get student input um, and, and make sure that, that that survey has a real student voice to it so that it seems relevant and resonates with students. So we could always use help people looking over the surveys for us as well. Again, data collect or data cleaning on the back end and and doing some of the, the survey work helps a lot too. And then even just talking about it amongst yourselves, you know, sort of getting folks familiar with what we're doing and why we're trying to do it, that, that in and of itself goes a long way, um, you know, to get the word out that this is going on and, and, and 
you know, we need students to participate. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second, why we're doing this. What is the big picture goal? What are we really trying to accomplish with this study? Yeah, sure. So um, I think what we want to do is provide the very best science we can to help the campus and the community through this pandemic. So whether that's actually giving the numbers on what our risk profile and our exposure profile looks like to, um, to the virus, or it's tar- helping uh, decision makers both inside the university, but also in the community target scarce resources, right? So there's a lot of problems that might be flying under the radar right now. Um, again, I just, you know, sort of thinking about the 18 to 24 year olds, we know from national survey data that anxiety, depression are on, are on the increase, but we don't know what it looks like on Penn State's campus. So we really want local data, the highest quality local data we can to make really informed choices about how we spend our time and our resources uh, so that we get the, the very highest level of impact we can to sort of reduce our risk and, and promote our resilience. Thank you. Right, and I, I don't have too much to add other than, you know, sometimes you think you know what the problem is, but without collecting data that might be unique to a community like Penn State, right? We're a relatively small town without the students, but we have this, you know, this symbiotic relationship with the student, the town and the students. And so I think really getting an understanding of, as Meg said, what are the issues and then how to move forward appropriately um, based on the, in the best interests of our community and including all of us. Thank you. And I understand um, because I was involved in some of the marketing uh, that we were reaching out to the local mayor and county commissioners and and, and really involving uh, local officials as well uh, who are looking at this data uh, in partnership with Penn State, which is fantastic. Yeah, we regularly brief um, council members, mayors, local government. Um, and, you know, again, just as an example, and I can share some data here in a minute, but everybody thinks, oh, we haven't had a high level of this virus circulating in the community um, like over the summer, but now we have numbers to show that that actually is the case in the resident community. So we want to continue to monitor that um, over time. Same with the students. Uh, We really don't know what the past exposure to the virus was because so many of our students come from um, higher prevalence uh, areas or lower prevalence areas. and we just haven't had the, the capacity to sort of really assess the antibody levels. So the past exposure, I know there's a lot of testing going on right now on campus for live virus, um, for current infections, but you know, what's, what's the past infection profile look like? I think it's an interesting question and we'll be able to answer that. Right, because if people listening don't realize yet, um, when, when you participate in the biological sampling aspect of this study, you're giving blood and you're, able to see if you have antibodies in your blood. So you, you could have uh, no virus in you whatsoever, and maybe you were exposed in the past, you've got antibodies and you don't even know it. And that's something that's part of this study, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Meg, do you want to maybe go ahead and share uh, some slides so we could take a look at some of the, the research and what you've discovered so far? I'll just quickly uh, talk for a minute about the county survey. This is the cross-sectional, the big survey that we did between June and, um, and October. Uh, we have a few, a few people that filled this out um, more recently, but uh, you can see that we actually were over 10,000 now. Um, we're just sort of still cleaning the data, uh, but that's the, the number for the, you know, sort of all county 
um, participants. And then that 1472, those are the uh, participants that came through and gave us biological samples. So as part of that, that larger survey, we asked community members, would you like to be enrolled in the um, cohort, which we're gonna follow, like I said, at least for three time points over the next year um, and give us uh, biomarker uh, uh, specimens and then also complete a longer survey. So that's the 1472. Yeah, and so for people just listening who, who aren't seeing the slides on our audio podcast, we had about 95, over 9,500 uh, as of October 4th, 9,573 of folks who, who did an online survey about how the pandemic has affected them. And then of those, uh, 1,472 folks came in and gave biological samples for part two of the survey. And it's actually up just a, a bit from that, but um, but that those are right around our, our final numbers. Got it. Um, so here's some, some of the uh, sort of early results that I, I mentioned earlier um, from the, the folks that gave us the biomarker data. Um, we are at about 2%. So a couple of things about the sample, it's not what we call in public health a purposeful sample. So it's a, it's a convenient sample in that we, we tried to get as many participants into that, uh, that 10 minute survey as possible. And then, you know, but there's still a selection bias of the people that did that survey and then the people that chose to give us information and potentially enroll into the cohort study. So we don't wanna misrepresent this as saying, okay, this is, um, definitely representative of the entire community. However, the numbers are such in terms of the number of participants that we have that we're able to sort of look at the, the demographics of the county and, and compare that against our participants, which we will be doing. So we're gonna say a bit more about how our participants look compared to the county overall. However, from you know not an insignificant number of people who have come through the clinic, we only saw about 2% having been exposed previously to, um, to the virus. So, so that's 2% of people have antibodies in their blood. Correct, exactly. So again, I think that um, the Huck folks would say, you know, we're a pretty naive population that we haven't had high levels of exposure um, of the virus through um, at least September. We had a few folks come in and give blood in October, but for the most part, we were collecting data in August and September. And, and Meg, just to clarify things, of, of that group of people that came in, um, had any of them known that they had had the virus in the past? Yeah. So we asked that on the survey so we can compare that, but um, I, I don't have that exact response. You know, it would be anecdotal if they happened to mention it. Um, so we will be reporting whether or not they had tested positive or, you know, had, had otherwise had a clinical diagnosis of um, of the virus. So We'll also know if they had symptoms. So we ask about symptoms independent from a positive test result. So that, that's how we're sort of combining the survey and the, um, the antibody data as well. Um, and then just the last, if, if people are interested in learning more, um, this is sort of where we are. We're going with the uh, somewhere between 1,000, maybe 1,500 students. And we're, again, we're right now under IRB review. So we can't say too much about when we're going to launch that, but we're really hoping to do it this month. Um, and again, the same procedures for the students, we'll ask them to enroll, they'll complete. Uh, the student survey is a bit shorter, it's about um, 20 minutes long, and then they'll come into the clinic and, and give the same specimens. Um, and then we're gonna start through late November, December, 
uh, with our second wave of community. So it'll be this, those same 1400 and such um, participants will come back in and we'll be able to look and see, did we, do we have any increase from time one to time two uh, in, okay. yep, in positive antibody results. Um, people can track the, the study and we're gonna be putting up a dashboard with the results uh, on our website. And if people would like more information about it, if you're a student and want to know if there's opportunities to participate in the research itself, please feel free to email us at the email address there. Um, and, and we'll uh, get back with you on, on sort of current openings and opportunities. And for, for listeners, it's data, the number four action, data for action at psu.edu. Yeah, Meg, thank you so much for sharing that data with us. Um, has anything surprised um, you guys so far, at least through the research that you both revealed here and in general, some research that you are allowed to reveal at this point? Has anything surprised you or, at all, or were you guys pretty, um, pretty blank in terms of expectations coming into this? I think people had a, a pretty solid guess that um, State College had a low prevalence rate of antibodies. And I think just confirming that, I mean, I think that was a, a hypothesis, but we needed to actually do the experiment to test that. Um, just at a more global level, I think, you know, we are a, a very large and growing group of people who have never worked together before. And I think there was some anxiety about workflow and how things were going to shape up. And I think all of us have been pleasantly surprised and are working really quite effectively and, 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 and very productively together. So it's exciting from a, you know, new, new collaboration standpoint. <laughs> yeah. And I, just to add to that, I, well, on a data side, on the social behavioral data side, I was surprised at how many community residents reported this life disruption um, considering that we started data collection in June, but um, just a couple of other numbers that 32% said their lives have been significantly disrupted with another 64% saying moderately disruptive. So I think that surprised me a, a bit because we always sort of think about the community as being fairly resilient and, you know, pretty, pretty stable, but it, this pandemic has really turned people's lives up, upside down. And to see those numbers, I think was, was a bit shocking for me. Um, on the on the workflow side, I'm um, I don't know if it's surprised, but just really um, really happy to see how many people that have both signed up for the study as participants as well as students who have contacted us and said, Connie, sort of what you alluded to earlier, that I want to do something, I want to do something to positively impact, you know, or have some positive impact in the in the middle of this, you know, sort of terrible crisis. So a lot of the participants that come in anecdotally, we heard, you know, said I, I really want to just provide anything I can, data that will help inform the the community and help keep the community safe. And for students, it's the same sort of altruistic sort of motivation, just anything I could do to help or, or be a positive force in, in the middle of all of this, I wanna to try to do. So I'm surprised about that. And then again, I just can't say enough about our nurses, our clinical staff and the people working in the labs. They were literally working around the clock to get these data collected because it's a small window that we have uh, to, to really get these numbers. So I'm really happy about that. Yeah, I do think it's very, um, you know, inspiring and wholesome that like, you know, and like during this crisis, all these different factions of this, you know, gigantic university have like, you know, come together and um, all like have a hand in this project. And it seems to be, you know, uh, going pretty smoothly. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, we had um, faculty who were retired, but still had their clearances. They were emeritus status, come in and volunteer um, in the labs. We had uh, faculty not related necessarily directly to the project, come in and volunteer in the clinic to consent and get trained and all of that. So it's it's just, like I said, a cast of thousands, but it's it's been terrific to see how people pulled together to, to make this happen. And we should also mention, um, that the provost, that Nick Jones, that Penn State has funded this entire effort. It is not an insignificant amount of, of resources that went into this. Again, to make that commitment to keep this community as safe as possible through science um, is I think just uh, not, again, not surprising, but um, just a, a, a something that we're very proud of and, and happy about, so. Absolutely. And uh, in a minute here, we're going to take a look for, for those watching on video. Um, we're going to have a look at what some of this looks like. Uh, the Huck team went down and took some uh, photos and video of uh, those nurses you were just talking about and in Connie's lab, uh, seeing some of the students working with the samples. But um, before we get into that, and I'm going to ask Connie to like let us know what we're looking at there and describe that for, for people listening. But um, I just want to unpack a little bit um, the reasons for studying the students separately from center county residents, those two separate cohorts, and what's the relationship that you're looking for between those two groups? Yeah, so so you there so we're considering this, you know, one study that has two cohorts in it. For the most part, it's a timing issue. Um, of, of when we bring people through the clinic and um, trying to get the resident population in first to see, are we truly a naive population? Or is that, you know, we didn't know until we got that 2% that, yeah, we didn't have a lot of transmission prior. That was really critical. So for, for the most part, we're not really considering them two separate components. It's just a matter of, of when we stagger the clinic visits and the recruitment process. Now in the resident cohort, we do have some Penn State students. So the eligibility criteria to participate as a resident was that you were residing in Center County from March of 2020 through to September 2020. Um, but we, we will have some, some students in that cohort. They weren't excluded. Uh, yeah. And But will you be looking at the, the relationships in any way, or the, is there anything built into sort of the, the way that the student population re relates to the center county, the town gown dynamic and all that stuff? Sure, yeah. So, of course, we'll be looking at the serology and, and looking at the level of antibodies, et cetera. Um, but just even on the survey side, we've actually... Um, put the same sort of items uh, or some of the same items on the student survey as we did the community survey. And we'll combine those data, particularly when we're looking at vaccine intentions, um, mm -hmm. mitigation behaviors. We wanna look at like all of the adults that are in our community, not seeing them as separate, realizing that prevention requires everybody to sort of collectively do their part. So we'll be combining those data um, once we have them at, for, for both the community residents and the, and the students. Got it. And so even though we're, we might be a naive uh, population in terms of low uh, serology results, we hope we won't be naive in terms of uh, how we're, we're living our lives. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. And the other thing I wanted to add is we're also collecting health data, other health parameters because we've learned, um, unfortunately, there are risk factors that make 
um, response to the virus and clearing the virus and illness related to that. And um, we're collect we don't know if those same factors influence a person's ability to make effective antibodies to the virus. Mm -hmm. So we're collecting that, that data in both the community sample and in the, and in the students. So I think that's another layer of this um, and then we have all of the questionnaire data about psychosocial health. And we're gonna be able to look at these complex relationships in a very unique way that um, we feel pretty excited about because not, not a lot of folks have had the wherewithal to put a study like this together, you know, grassroots and get it launched. So I think we're gonna have some really, really informative information for not only Penn State community, but you know, the U.S. at large. <laughs> That's terrific. Be a model moving forward, not to end, but to become a system where we're monitoring the health and well-being, because this won't be the last health crisis or infectious yeah. disease that we see, you know, sort of coming our way. So we'd love to sort of establish this as a model um, for other university towns, for other towns that have uh, populations that move in out. So you could see like beach towns, resort towns, border towns, military yeah. towns with military bases. This has a broader set of implications. Yeah. And Meg, you mentioned earlier about how, um, you know, the students, you know, came back in August from, you know, all over the country and all over the world, basically, you know, some came from high frequency areas and some came from low frequency areas. Like what um, impact do you think that that kind of dynamic is going to have on your results moving forward? Yeah, exactly. That's that's part of what we're trying to study. What is that's an empirical question. You know, um, we're stratifying the sample for those who are interested. Um, that means we're sort of grouping students by the prevalence of the counties that they came from um, before they mm -hmm. returned to campus, and then sampling within there. So we're getting a mix of that risk strata. So um, we really do want to understand. You know, because a lot of them might not know that they were exposed. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in, in the younger population, there is a higher um, prevalence of, of asymptomatic spread, as we know. So um, just sort of understanding that and then understanding how the changes in the student population and the changes in the resident population sort of move together or diverge, I think, is something that would be really interesting. And because We've never been in this situation before. We don't have the answer yet, but that's definitely the question that we're asking. Right on. Well, if it's okay, I'm going to share my screen and just uh, take a look at some of this footage and I'll ask Connie to kind of um, narrate if she would, uh, because some of this is from her lab. So um, I'm just going to kind of hit play. This is what it looks like uh, when you come in to give your biological samples at the clinical research center on campus. Yes, so a nurse is, after consenting the person and they agree to be in research, a nurse would in, draw blood and then label the tube with the study participant ID. Um, all the data is de-identified um, and then it's properly packaged. Here we're taking in a, uh, a lock of hair uh, for another research study and all the biological specimens are being placed in the refrigerator. And here's our clinical team after a long, hard day. Um, the blood then gets sent to my lab and James McGee, a grad student is loading the centrifuge because we're spinning the cells to separate the plasma or the liquid portion of the blood from the packed red cells. He's entering data here on the computer. Um, so we are archiving samples for future research. 
Another graduate student, Jan Damani, is pipetting off the liquid portion of the blood or the serum into vials. And those vials would then be assayed for antibodies. And we have some samples biobanked in case any other research questions emerge that, that we want to address. Fantastic. Thanks, Connie. And then sure. those samples are then sent to Mount Nittany, correct? We also have uh, Mount Nittany as a partner in this yes. research. Yes, we've been fortunate. Mount Nittany has uh, a certified laboratory that is able to evaluate antibodies and those antibody results are then given back to participants. Um, and so Mount Nittany has been running all the samples since August 7th for us. So we have established a partnership with our local community hospital as well, which is, you know, another part of this team. Yeah, truly. That's, uh, it's really an example of a community coming together uh, within Penn state and without Penn state uh, everybody kind of banding together to, to do what we can here. Really inspiring stuff. And I don't know if I mentioned this, um, but, but individual participants will get their antibody results back. Um, so, you know, I presented the data that were in aggregate, but that's why the Mount Nittany partnership is so critical because they have the clinical lab that can actually provide results back. So um, yeah, so it's unusual sometimes in, in research studies, if you're participating as, you know, just sort of a resident or a student, you don't get any direct information back, but in this case you do. That's right. Yeah, that's that's key in, in some ways, because I know a lot of folks are really excited to, to get those results. Um, yeah, my own wife was in the study, and that was one of the things that she really wanted to know. Have, have I had this and didn't even know it, right? Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you guys, it seems like there's almost two parts to this, to this, um, to this research project, uh, which is sort of this, this social study and the medical study of it. And we've talked a lot about the medical study so far, like taking of samples um, and the detection of antibodies in these samples. Uh, but how do those two sort of come together and also what goes into the social aspect of the research? Yeah, so, and, and Connie, you can take over because I know this is really your area, but the, the one thing that I think is really interesting on, on um, combining both the, directly combining the, the bio with the social is around these ideas of inflammation markers um, because they have implications both for disease and also for vaccine um, activation. And we know that students, again, I keep going back to this, but highly impacted by stress, anxiety, life course changes, changes in academic plans, you know, impacting everybody from first years all the way up to graduating seniors, of course. Um, so how does that show up in the body, right? Um, so we'll have measures of self-report experiences, stress, coping, et cetera, support systems. Do they have peers they can go to? Have they been able to talk to advisors and mentors through all of this? Um, but then, and I'll hand this off to Connie, but then sort of looking at both from the hair, the cortisol that we can get from the hair, as well as the serology, um, how is that showing up and what are the implications for health and well-being in, in the context of um, inflammation and, and um, immunity? Right. And so I think what Meg already nicely outlined is, you know, each part of this is its own research. We have, you know, top-notch social science researchers asking these questions just about the effect of the pandemic on, you know, social and behavioral outcomes. And then we're looking at the antibody titers and that change, that seroprevalence over time and the mixing of students and, and residents. And so that's its own biological question. And we're collecting information about health and, uh, you know, 
prior disease risk, risky behavior, um, stress and anxiety. And ultimately, we hopefully will be able to answer very key questions do things like chronic psychological stress that one might experience <laughs> during a pandemic, you know, is that influencing the conversion, the antibody rate? Is it, are other existing conditions in these populations, whether that's obesity or a high BMI or prior cardiovascular risk or, you know, diabetes, how are they impacting the development of antibodies and does stress play a role in that process? So I, I think we're going to ask, be able to ask some very integrated questions at that interface of, you know, psychosocial and biological or biomedical outcomes. And again, a, a very unique opportunity to ask some critically important questions as we move forward. I also wanted to mention that Dr. Rachel Smith um, and Dr. Jess Myrick and are, and as well as others, are um, looking at health messaging um, in particular. And so how do we effectively health message around this? So how do we use our own data to potentially feed in health message, you know, into data-driven health messages that might resonate with students, with residents, et cetera, uh, to better manage their, their overall health, um, but particularly their COVID-19 behavioral health um, actions. Yeah, and and I feel like you're you're all sort of taking this this really interesting holistic view of of health in general, um, you know, both mental and physical. Because um, I know I can speak for myself. You know, if, you know, I'm really stressed out for a while. You know, I just feel bad body wise. You know, physically, and I feel like that could even affect how prone somebody might be to to, to catching the virus potentially, and sort of documenting these effects and noticing patterns. For yeah. sure. Yeah. The mind-body connection is a biggie. <laughs> well, this has been spectacular. Uh, does anybody have any last questions while we're still on the line together? Sure. Yeah. If I, I just want to ask like one final question. Say like if there is a student out there listening right now who is thinking about participating, whether that be helping out, helping to conduct the study or, you know, undergoing the study themselves. Um, is there anything else that you guys would like to say to them? Yeah, well, thank you. First of all, thank you for considering this. Um, anything that our students, again, can do to sort of help um, spread the word about the study, that why it's being done and sort of the different aspects would be really helpful. Um, for the student enrollment, um, we're, we will be emailing students directly sort of in these batches. So please look for an email from Data for Action. Um, and if you're invited, consider um, clicking through at least to learn more, uh, I think would be something that we would love for, for students to understand. And even if you have no history of participating in research, you know, either as a participant or as a volunteer, we have lots of jobs for lots of different kinds of people. So, you know, if, if you want to make a difference, shoot us an email. That's at data number four action at psu.edu. Well, I just want to thank everybody again for being on the Podward State uh, Symbiotic Podcast Collaborative episode. It's been wonderful talking with you all. Uh, I wish you the best of luck uh, with this project and the best of luck to the Podward State hosts with everything they're doing. And uh, yeah, let's just look at this rough situation and realize we can still do positive things uh, to make a difference in the world, to, to make things a little better for everybody. So we are doing what we can. <laughs> Thanks a lot, everybody. Take good care. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much. Bye-bye. Bye.
The Symbiotic Podcast is a production of the Huck Institutes of the Life Sciences at Penn State University. Our audio engineer, illustrator, and soundtrack composer is Brennan Dincher. Our video producer is Dan Lesher. Our marketing manager is Keith Hickey. And our webmaster is Jody Lemaster. I'm Cole Hans. Thanks again for listening, and don't stop co-evolving.